Oh my goodness. Yeah. This is the experience of so many parents that they can't, it is not possible. And we think about the load of motherhood. It is impossible to, you know, do these things that we're expected to do as well as be present. Like in what job, in what world are we expected to be present? Like if you worked for an organization, would they say like, I need you to be present and on 24, 7, 365, you would laugh, right? Like, okay, well, how much are you paying me <laughs> to do that, to do that work? I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. Today, we have Dr. Asherina Reem joining us, and you may know her better as Psyched Mommy over on Instagram. She has incredible infographics that just speak to a mama's soul. And a few weeks ago, we asked our audience what questions they had and were overwhelmed with how many responses came in. There's so many women who are wondering the same thing, so we'll be diving right into a few of those today. So to get us started, could you let us know a little bit more about who you are and your calling in this world? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, I'm Dr. Ashri Nareem. I am Psych Mommy on Instagram, which is how I feel like most people know me. And I am a licensed clinical psychologist, and I also specialize in perinatal mental health, which means I work primarily with women and their families throughout fertility, pregnancy, and postpartum and beyond. I wasn't doing this work, you know, five, 10 years ago, which is interesting because if you would ask me then, I would have told you, I, I don't see myself working in that field. Why would I work in that field? And it wasn't until I became a mom that my career as a psychologist really, I took a, like I made a big pivot because I struggled with fertility and um, multiple miscarriages. I struggled with my pregnancy. It was high risk and complicated. And I was experiencing a lot of anxiety and depressive symptoms. So it was, it only seemed like the, the right next step for me to support other um, people that were experiencing what I experienced. So they didn't feel so isolated and alone. So I really changed the shift of my entire career and um, never looked back. So now my life's work is to support um, people and their families that are going through this transition to new parenthood and to really give them the support that they need and the resources they need to not feel like I did. Well, I am glad that you stepped into this calling because I have to say I'm such a big fan and the way that you teach on these subjects is helpful to so many women. So thank, thank you, you for that. Um, I was listening to you on the Happy as a Mother podcast, and you spoke about motherhood after miscarriage, feeling this extra pressure to enjoy something that you wanted so much. And as you said, your, your road was longer to it. I remember um, one of my friends had a, a similar experience in in struggling with infertility. And she put a post up and she said um, that she vowed she would never complain about anything about motherhood because it had taken her a long time to get there. 
And at that time I had had children and I read those words and I just thought, man, that is an enormously high bar to set for yourself. Like my heart broke a little bit that she would have so much pressure wrapped around her experience. So can you speak about this phenomenon from a personal and a professional standpoint of that added pressure if it has been a hard road to get to motherhood? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Yes. Um, it is on a personal level. I recognize this completely because we feel like something was so hard for me, right? I, it was so hard for me to experience this. And people will say like, motherhood is such a blessing. Pregnancy is such a blessing. You should you know, cherish this time. You should be so thankful. And these messages, whether they are messages we tell ourselves or messages that other people share with us become ingrained in us. So we feel like there is no space and there is no room for the ugly stuff. There's no room for the undesired emotions because we have to live in that gratitude and it's really hard and it creates, that's where the shame comes in because postpartum when I was struggling and people who knew me knew I'd had, you know, two miscarriages before I carried my son. And, um, they were just like, isn't this great? Isn't motherhood amazing? And it, you know, in those early days, especially in that fourth trimester, I remember looking at them and, you know, like holding back these tears and saying, yeah, yeah, it's great. Because I felt like that's what I had to say. I felt like that's what I had to exude is this, you know, gratitude 24 seven. I I really encourage um, new parents that walk this journey and are in this season that you don't have to always put on a brave face just because it was a long journey and there is room for gratitude and grief. There is room for, you know, gratitude and hard feelings and, you know, anxiety, depressed feelings, feeling let down. That's okay. There's space for all of those emotional experiences. And when we shut one of those down, when we say, you know, I have to be grateful and I can only be those things, we really, really turn that pain inward and we create turmoil within ourselves. So I think it's important to recognize both experiences, make space for both experiences, and just speak about it, process it. It's okay. And if you, I think once we speak about it, we will find that more people will stand up with us and say, yeah, you know, me too. I, I experienced that same thing. And you, we feel less alone in that. And a whole point of this podcast is to talk through the victories, but also to talk through those struggles. And we can all agree that there's space for both if we allow ourselves to feel that way. And some of it's seen, but a lot of it goes unseen. And I think a common thing that a lot of us get taught is that, oh, you're you're just being hormonal. Like, oh, that's just part of the process. And on that same podcast, you pointed out that miscarriage, trauma, infertility, they all lend towards depression. And they lend towards depression even before that postpartum period even begins. So where do you see women that experience depression and anxiety on their journey to becoming a mother? Yes. I, you're, I'm like, I, I don't even remember this entire podcast. I don't have to go back and listen to it. <laughs> but yes, so this is absolutely true. A lot of these things, it, they're risk factors for perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And so most of us don't even know that. There are so many risk factors. That's something I didn't know when I lived my experience was that having this um, struggle with fertility and having miscarriages, this is, was definitely contributing to the feelings I was having. And it's a common experience of a lot of women who have lived this uh, journey is that we will then experience 
trauma and anxiety because pregnancy is, it's like, it will never be the same. That's what it feels like when, especially pregnancy after loss. So something, a good point that you bring up is that perinatal, when we talk about that as mental health care practitioners, it is that period of time throughout pregnancy. And we say up to one year postpartum, but this definitely can persist if left untreated and if we really don't do anything. So most things is that we find that when a woman is like highly emotional or having these big emotions or feelings throughout pregnancy, we do say, oh, you're just a hormonal pregnant woman. Like, you know, you're just going through your waves of hormones, but truly we can be experiencing perinatal mood and anxiety disorders at this time. They did a large scale study of roughly 10,000 women. And what they found is that there were 21% of women met criteria for postpartum depression, but 33.4% of the women actually had those symptoms throughout pregnancy. So there are women that are experiencing these symptoms, but it's going unnoticed and it's not being, you know, we're not screening for these mood changes and we are really just screening for any developmental issues or things that are going on with the pregnancy rather than the emotion of the woman. So yes, it's really important to be paying attention and knowing what the resources are. A really great tool and resources, Postpartum Support International which is postpartum.net. And um, you can find so like a great wealth of knowledge and all the resources and support that you need along the journey. Thank you for sharing those resources. I know when you're talking, my mind is going towards there being shame around that experience and a woman being pregnant, but not wanting to share you know, some of those feelings that she has that aren't all happy and joy-filled. Um, so that that really spoke to me there. Now, I know that you have an extensive background on working with women with postpartum anxiety and depression. So first and foremost, I thought it would be really important for us to normalize these um, prenatal and postpartum mood disorders. Mm-hmm. Could you give us a little peek into how prevalent they are and what we should be on the lookout for, for not only ourselves, but for other moms that we know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So some research will say that one in five women will experience a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. Some will say, you know, one in seven. What research has identified is that one in 10 fathers actually experience um, particularly postpartum depression. This is something that we haven't even, you know, we don't even know about. We're not talking about. So it's, it's not just, you know, women and moms. It's also, you know, fathers and partners and adoptive parents and parents via surrogacy. There's just, it's such a shift that it's creating changes in mood. And it's not all biological and hormonal. That's something that we need to understand, but it is happening. And I find the one thing, and I I post about this quite often, but when people come to me and they say, I don't feel like myself, listen to that. You know, that if something in you is saying, I don't feel like I usually feel, or this doesn't feel, I don't feel comfortable with these emotions. They're really big. I'm having a hard time managing them. Listen to that and seek help. There's no such thing as seeking help too early. There's no such thing as, you know, this was, you know, a silly thing to get help for. It's never too early, but I will say when we're looking at like symptoms and I, these are like just really general symptoms. So I, I, it's hard because every person experiences this a little different. When we're talking about perinatal depression, we think that women should, you know, be weepy, and sad, you know, laying up in bed and crying all the time, that can be the case for some people. But for others, 
they can experience more of an agitated depression where they are angry and irritable and short fused. So it's just really important to pay attention to the changes in your mood, the severity of the changes and how long it's lasting. If you feel like it's impacting your work, your relationships, your ability to sleep or eat, these are things that it's really important to pay attention to. Those that are experiencing perineal anxiety might have a harder time sleeping, might feel like their thoughts are really worrisome, and this can happen throughout pregnancy. I started actually having um, what we talk about is scary or intrusive thoughts in my pregnancy, and that's where we people will have them during pregnancy and postpartum, but they're very common, where you're starting to have these horrifying thoughts of harm coming to you or the baby. And you just can't stop it. And it's chilling. Like you just feel like you're seeing scenes from a movie. I remember um, we were house and I was like seven months pregnant. And I just kept having these thoughts that I would fall or I would be holding my son and he would fall. Like I would drop him. And I was you know, like, oh, we need to move. We need to get out of this house. I was just so horrified by it. And what ha- tends to happen with parents is that we feel this intense guilt and shame. Like, why am I having these scary thoughts about something happening to my baby. What does that say about me? And it's really common, you know, more than 90% of new parents are experiencing these scary thoughts. So it's good to talk about it and normalize these experiences. But, and I know I can go on and on about all the things that can happen, but I just encourage new parents or, you know, throughout pregnancy and postpartum, if you're not feeling like yourself, seek support. It's not uncommon. And, you know, one thing that we need to pay attention to is that up to 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. So we can't expect that every single person that's pregnant is, you know, thrilled, even if they're in a committed relationship. So it's just something that we need to be talking more about and holding space for any parents so that they can talk about this stuff. And in that fourth trimester, so you mentioned the fourth trimester, asking yourself that question, like there is just such a continuum of all the struggles that we can be going through. And the fact that one in 10 partners are also going through that depressive state. I remember when um, our first was born, Lucy, Colin woke up. I mean, it was probably a month straight where he would wake up several times in the middle of the night thinking that the baby was in our bed and mm-hmm. that she had fallen on the ground. And her being like, I, I don't know what to do to help you. Like, I, <laughs> she's, not, she's not in our bed. She's, she's never been in our bed. But that was the intrusive thought that kept coming in. And as you talk about the different types of depression, the agitated depression. So being irritable, Mm -hmm. I definitely went through that with our second. So that second maternity leave, I did not give my emotions enough space to really let them be. At the same time, one of my best friends was being hospitalized for postpartum anxiety. So Mm -hmm. I just was stuck comparing myself like, well, I, I don't have it as bad as her. Like I should, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. This is, this is probably normal. And I was constantly wondering like, what is normal? What do most women go through? So with the baby blues versus depression, do you have any tips on just figuring out where a person is in that continuum? Mm -hmm. Yes, this is a great question. I wrote an article for uh, Motherly about this because this gets misconstrued often. And people will continue to say to new parents, to new moms, you know, you just are experiencing postpartum blues, baby blues, and they'll just leave it at that. And they'll say, yeah, you know, my, my hormones again are all over the place. And there is space and there is room to, like, we know that hormones can impact our mood. We know that. And it's actually um, less common for women to have that shift in hormone postpartum, like a, like any imbalance in like your thyroid, for example, can mimic these perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. 
So if you have a history of that, get it checked out. If you're you know, concerned about that, get that checked out with your primary care physician and get labs done to look at that. But when we're talking about from a, like a mood standpoint that is not being changed um, biologically, I'll compare the two. We're looking at a few things. When, when is the, what's the onset? When did these symptoms start? How severe are they? And how long are they lasting? Because these are important things, and that's what tells us as practitioners what's going on. Perinatal depression can start any time throughout the pregnancy, and like I said, that first year postpartum is where we're really we're zoned in on, and we're looking at the presentation of these symptoms. People will report, you know, feeling like their cognitions have changed. Maybe they feel like this general malaise. Maybe they are feeling a postpartum rage. Perhaps they are having suicidal ideation. Maybe they're not feeling connected to their child or they're feeling like everything feels really hard right now. Even getting up to pack the diaper bag feels like it is too much for me to do. And it's, there's a spectrum of, I mean, there's symptoms. Obviously we could go over them and describe them all, but it's like goes back to that. I don't feel like myself and it's long lasting. When we talk about postpartum blues or baby blues, this is a very specific time period. This occurs within days postpartum. And it only lasts up to two to three weeks. So it's not like this is some long standing thing. If you are beyond, you know, two to three weeks postpartum, we need to be exploring something else because it's not, it's not going to be that. It's not postpartum blues. And generally, you know, the new parent is happy. Mood is generally happy. They um, can feel connected with the baby, but they just feel overwhelmed and maybe more emotional and more reactive. They're experiencing fatigue. And um, it's not due to a psychiatric condition. It's just a, a response that's thought to be due to that hormonal withdrawal that we're experiencing postpartum. And it should resolve within a few weeks. So that is like the big mix up. This is not a psychiatric condition. It is short lasting. It's the onset is postpartum and it's in this brief period in time, you know, this set time. Whereas when we're looking at perinatal depression, it can present throughout pregnancy that, you know, year plus postpartum, and it is more severe in nature. And one of the common questions I get on almost every single takeover I do, every single Q&A I do is, okay, I am four months postpartum and I'm just starting to feel this way. Can it be postpartum depression? And the answer is yes, absolutely. A lot of people will say that their symptoms peaked four to six months postpartum. So we, it can happen at, you know, any point and some people will have a later onset. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I think one thing that Abby and I have a shared experience of looking back at our postpartum periods and when when you're further out, like having a sense of, oh man, I really did struggle with some anxiety. Like for me, it was after my first born. But at the time, I wasn't able to name that or share that with people. Like now I'm very open in talking about it, but when sometimes when you're experiencing it right at the time, it you don't talk about it. It's like you're mm-hmm. kind of um it doesn't feel comfortable to talk about or share that that is your experience. It mm-hmm. seems to me like more people are starting to talk about postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. Is that something that you're seeing or does it seem like a lot of people are still, you know, kind of going through it and then reflecting back and saying, 
actually, that was me too. I just didn't have um, a name for it. Mm-hmm. I, it's a little bit of both. So I think what you're saying is absolutely true. People will share about it. And I don't think I even knew it was going on with me until I was had passed. And I think that's the part. So if we don't have the words, we don't have the awareness. Sometimes it feels like this is what it's supposed to be. So we don't know. And it's not until we really are doing all this, you know, I need to figure out the answer. What is happening with me that we start to understand more. It's like when we start getting out of that phase of our lives where maybe we start to feel better that we noticed I wasn't feeling good to begin with. I think it's hard for me to tell what's what, because I am immersed in the field of perinatal mental health. So everyone's talking about it around me. And, um, I, I talk about it more openly with people around me, but I still do see people that don't talk about it. Or I see people that will, um, I think it's a cultural thing too, to identify it as something else and pass it off as being something else because it's easier to say there is something physically wrong with me than to say I am not well emotionally and mentally. I don't feel good. It's easier to say, um, my hormones are off in a lot with, I don't want to say this for everybody that's the case, but it's a very, um, culturally conditioned thing to identify and pass it off as, as saying that this is due to something else. So as a follow-up to that, let's dig a little bit deeper into all those different pieces that can add into that heavy load. So Mm -hmm. as women, we are just carrying so much around, um, both emotionally and physically. And you post about this often and every single time it pops up, I'm like, oh, thank you. Like, that's what I needed to hear. I'm not alone in having these thoughts. So dig a little bit deeper into the invisible load and how that specifically surrounds mothering. The invisible load of motherhood. Oh my goodness. Right. We could, I could write a novel. Where do we start? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The, and if you're not familiar with this idea, this concept of the invisible load, it's this, obviously the what's unseen in the work that we do and the things that we're responsible for, not just physically responsible for, but also the things that we are preparing for and working through mentally. And that can be very exhausting. Um, I know this as a human being, as a mother myself, that the load I carry often feels really heavy and it doesn't seem like it's fair. And I get that a lot, right? Where we feel like the, um, the division of labor in our homes doesn't seem fair where we feel like we've got far more to do than our partner, our support person. Um, and it's true. We do. And I think part, part of this is like how we are biologically, um, wound, like how we are created to be, I think just the, we have this response, this biological response to want to care for the need of our child And part of it is innate. And there's so much other of it that's conditioned as a society where we feel like we have to, like I have to be doing all of these things. So I would suggest that we start to work to really help ourselves with the load of motherhood. Because I think sometimes we are the contributor. We are the people that make this worse. Obviously, we can change as a society and we can do this, you know, societal work where we are not expecting so much for moms and we're not sending these messages to moms about what they need to be doing and how they need to be doing everything. But I think this is also something that we can do personally of what we choose to make important, what we set as priority, um, what kind of boundaries are we setting with our time and what we consume. And then also how we're communicating with those around us to say that this is the, you know, this is what we're responsible for. This is something I teach my clients, but going through like, what are, what's, must be done in our home and with our children. And how are we going to divide this? 
How are we going to share responsibility in this? This is a conversation that's really important to have in pregnancy. And I know that if you haven't had it and you're postpartum, you have, you know, several kids have it today because the worst thing we can do is not talk about the invisible load because we need to kind of make it visible, right? We need to be talking about this. We need to be sharing in the responsibility so that we do not create undue resentment with our partner or the person, the people around us that love and care about us and that we can share in all of this work. I do this with my husband all the time and I try not to be passive aggressive, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm working on this myself. <laughs> But um, it's identifying everything that there is need to be, that needs to be done that's floating around in my head and say, you know what, I'm okay with doing X, Y, and Z. Can you take A, B, and C? And if that doesn't work, we'll flip it around. And if more becomes needs to be on both of our plates, we're going to share in this work because I refuse to be holding on to resentment of work that I'm taking on and taking ownership for. That answer, I cannot tell you how deeply that just resonated with me because after our first child, I had that resentment um, and it really built over time. And I just felt myself really irritated with my husband. That was like a lot of our experience as first time parents. But then I learned, I've learned from so many authors and, and Instagram accounts like yours to to take action to make it better. So Drew and I now sharing the load has really helped my the way I feel about motherhood and the way I feel towards him too. So mm-hmm. um, after we had our third baby, Cole, my experience was so much better. Although we had three little humans, like we had, you know, gotten much closer to really having a partnership where we were sharing all of the tasks that needed to be done for these little boys. Um, And so I remember getting a bunch of messages on Instagram and it was women comparing themselves and their journey to me saying like, wait, how are you doing all this with three kids? Like I'm at home with one little kid and I cannot even handle, handle one kid. And so for Abby and I, one of the parts of our message is to help women to understand that comparison and what you see on Instagram usually isn't like the full picture of a woman's life. So Mm -hmm. that's number one. But number two, like they were seeing four years of work with my partner to be able to really share the parenting load. Um, So could you speak to how you feel like women, um, can kind of free themselves or at least get a little better when it comes to comparing themselves to other moms? Oh my goodness. Yes. I always talk about, you know, how do we censor or create boundaries and boundaries? We think of boundaries as a a boundary I create with other, somebody else in my life to um, maybe not be codependent, to have healthy boundaries. I'm going to teach my kids all about boundaries. And we haven't really, um, identified, you know, what is this and how else can I apply this boundary setting? But I talk about consumption of information and why we need to set firm boundaries with what it is that we take in. Because comparison, like you said, we're getting just a blip from someone's entire life and they choose what they put out there for all of us. I have so many posts about comparison, but I will just leave it at this. We are such unique individuals. Every single one of us comes with our unique background, our um, relationships, if we're in a relationship or not in a relationship, obviously culturally, sociodemographics, everything that you can think of. So when we compare, it's not really an even playing field. So it's really kind of pointless to do that, right? It's pointless to say, 
um, where I'm at here is going to compare to where you're at here. And I love the work of Dr. Kristen Neff. She wrote the book Self-Compassion, and I talk often about self-compassion. But one of the tenets of the work of self-compassion talks about common humanity. And the, the essence of that is that we are all in the same soup. We're all in the same, I guess, stuff, right? We're all human. We all suffer to some degree. And my suffering might not look like your suffering right now. And that's okay. But I do know that maybe I just came out of a season of joy or um, abundance, and now I'm coming into something that's not so good, and I, it's rough, and I don't like it. Well, you don't know where that person is in their journey, and you don't know what uh, season they're currently in. We don't know what battles they're facing. So instead of making it kind of like that us versus them mentality, it's making it more of we're all together in this human experience. We all suffer. And it's not just me. It's not woe is me. I can't possibly be the only person struggling with this situation. So that's just something very important. And I highly recommend the work of Dr. Kristen Neff because um, I think it's very impactful when we have that self-compassion because it really helps us get out of that lens of why we need to compare and why we need to do all those things. And we'll make sure to link all of these. You've up some really good resources between postpartum.net and Dr. Kristen Neff. We're about to have our third baby. So our third baby's due in August. And there are so many women who are listening. Thank you. There are so many women listening who are also expecting babies. Or there's others who have friends who know that there's a little one coming soon. Mm-hmm. So being a new mom is really hard. Like this is our third time. We know it's hard. There are so many working parts. So beyond some of these resources you've mentioned, what tips or other resources do you recommend for preparing for this very, very special fourth trimester just to make it easier on the mom and also everyone else involved? Have the conversations with your support people. Set expectations right now. So if we're talking about some of those expectations with your partner, like, okay, I am not going to be doing, I'm not going to be taking care of any meals. And I just want you to know that right now, you're going to be responsible for that. Or I'm giving you a random example, but write down right. all of the responsibilities. <laughs> yes, me too. And it probably would be like pizza every day in my house if that were the case. But um, set down like, what are every, what is everything that we typically do in the week? What are the things that I'm responsible for? And what am I going to need help with? Because the last thing you need to be worried about in the midst of the fourth, tri- fourth trimester, when you're sleep deprived, you have a new baby you're managing everything else is like, do I need to be taking care of our pets? Do I need to be taking care of our older kids? You know, can I have somebody else come in and clean? Whatever that is and whatever you are capable of doing, obviously with your resources, but writing, talking that out with your partner, talking about how you feel about visitors and setting boundaries with people, you know, like, is your mom going to come and stay for six months? Just kidding. But like, (laughs) (laughs) like having those conversations now, setting the boundaries, and executing those things because it really takes that a lot of that um, wishy-washy, that feeling of un, like of the unknown postpartum because you have a plan together. And then talk about like what are we going to do when it comes to taking care of our child? Who's going to be up at night? Am I nursing or are we you know bottle feeding? Who's going to be cleaning the bottles? Just obviously setting the expectations. And if you can, sleep is one of those things that is really important because outside of biological causes, it is. Um, really strongly tied to postpartum depression and, you know, maternal depression. So sleep is imperative. And I know that babies don't sleep. I had one of those babies. I had. <laughs> I, he was like a toddler and he was one of those toddlers. So I know from firsthand experience, but 
um, figuring out like, well, how can I get some sleep? Because even if I can't get, you know, five hours of sleep at night, how do I make up for that? Are we going to be alternating wake-ups? Is there somebody that can take over throughout the day that can, you know, stand watch while I sleep? And um, it's really important to look into things like that. I loved the ideas of meal trains, like where people will bring meals to you. I had somebody set one of those up for me. And, um, but also setting expectations with that. Cause I had a hard time as a psychologist and as a new mom, I remember feeling like there's a lot of pressure that we feel as new parents where people feel like they can tell you what they need to be doing for you. Like I need to come drop off this food and come visit you. Right. Or like, I'm going to come to the hospital or obviously now we don't, not, not everyone's going to be just, you know, parading through the hospital, but there's just these things where we feel this pressure and we have to set the expectation before we even get there because otherwise we feel like we're overrun and our voice has little merit in the experience. I loved everything that you just said. (laughs) And I know for my husband and I, sometimes we have to come back and have a round table discussion, the two of us, if there's something that you know, because once you're going through this experience, it might not be exactly the way that you thought it was going to be, especially I think mm-hmm. if it's your first child. So Drew and I will sometimes sit down on a Sunday and we have to talk through what is working and what is not working so that both of us, but especially the mom in really early motherhood can feel as well as she can. Um, Because I know that conversation of like how many visitors you're going to want. You might, I was very uncomfortable breastfeeding and it took me a really long time to feed. So I didn't want as many visitors as I thought I did before I had the experience. Um, But one question that we got over and over again for you Mm -hmm. was about birth trauma and that experience. So maybe the birth went away that was not expected. Maybe it was a traumatic birth. Maybe it was an emergency C-section. And sometimes the emotions around that experience really stay hidden for people. But it comes back front of mind when they're thinking of being pregnant again, or they feel angst um, when they're due date is coming or when the subsequent birth is starting to get closer. How can women process through these emotions to to move on from that really hard experience? This is such a great thing. It's actually been coming up more frequently for me and in my question and my DMs and everything. I recently did a an Instagram live. I will, I mean I know like plug. It's not a plug. I'm, it's, <laughs> because, it's because I interviewed a perinatal trauma expert and um, we talked all about this, this very topic. And obviously I can share a ton here, but um, I don't want to like reinvent the wheel. We talked about every single topic. So I, I interviewed um, Krista Dancy. She's a perinatal trauma expert. She's a therapist as well as a doula. And we went over all of the ways to process this and what is happening. So one thing that people don't know is that obviously postpartum trauma, perinatal trauma is a thing. A lot of people don't even know that. And up to 9% of women will experience, like they will, they will meet criteria for PTSD postpartum. And roughly 34% of women report experiencing birth trauma. That is, that's high. Those are high numbers, right? And we're not talking about it and we're kind of just like letting it I guess, 
disappear. We just like pretend like it's gone because, oh, you, well, now you have your baby. You should feel very grateful, right? And it goes back to these myths that we've learned and this conditioned response that says, yeah, that was hard, but, and we really have to get rid of that like narrative and even correct it in our own brains. But some of the ways that you can process through this, and I think it's impactful and it's imperative is that you, you speak to a licensed therapist that is spe- that specializes in perinatal mood and anxiety disorder, but also has training in trauma. That's very, it's critical because if someone can tell you that they can help you, but if they don't have the training, the trauma training and the perinatal mood and anxiety disorder training, they're not going to really know how to help you. And you have to work through that because there are some consequences of untreated trauma. Untreated trauma will create a lot of that stuff that you talked about. Maybe it's avoidance of aftercare. Perhaps it's, I don't want to be pregnant again. So I'm going to avoid subsequent pregnancies, or I'm going to elect for um, a C-section because it was so bad for me last time. Or maybe I'm, you know, whatever the case may be, it can result in a lot of things. But one of the most, I think, impactful things is that it can really hurt that connection and that attachment with your baby, not in all cases, but in some. And talking to a trained therapist is a must because that's where you can do the work to process that trauma, find out more about what is triggering this trauma and to calm your nervous system, which is really important to be able to work through that and move forward and potentially have a very healing experience in the future. And for anybody who's gone through that trauma, I didn't even realize trauma therapists exist. Like I didn't realize that that was a thing that there are people who specialize in therapy as well as trauma. And with 9% going through PTSD, like that is a lot more than I was thinking Mm -hmm. um, as it relates to, to the birth of your baby. And you mentioned that connection. So we know that's not just the couple of days after. It's not even the couple of weeks or months after like this, these connections can last a really long time and just the lack thereof. And we had a lot of questions come in about being present with our kids. Many women struggling in this department. I am raising my hand as well. Amy and I were actually talking today about how she's like able to be in those toddler years, like playing with the kids, getting muddy, where I find myself it's easier to you know clean and cook or do those types of things. So I find that my mind wanders. I'm playing Legos or I'm playing with Barbies and I'm thinking about that never-ending to-do list. I'm thinking about doing the laundry. I'm thinking about the things that need to get done. And then I find myself yearning for things like bedtime where I can finally get a break. And it feels awful. Like sometimes it feels absolutely terrible, especially right now being so pregnant and being so tired. So what tips do you have for women who may find themselves having a hard time with remaining in the present? I'd say you're normal. <laughs> oh, thank you for saying that. <laughs> it's so hard to say these things, but I, I, I know that if no. I'm feeling them, others yeah. might be too. Oh my goodness. Yeah. This is the experience of so many parents that they can't, it is not possible. And we think about the load of motherhood. It is impossible to, you know, do these things that we're expected to do as well as be present. Like in what job, in what world are we expected to be present like if you worked for an organization, would they say like, I need you to be present and on 24, 7, 365, you would laugh, right? Like, okay, well, how much are you paying me <laughs> to do that, to do that work? Because <laughs> it's clearly not enough, whatever you think that you're going to offer. So I think one is to change our own expectations of what we should be doing. And we are not like the entertainment um, directors for our kids. So there is something to be said also of teaching our kids to independently play and do things. Obviously when they're so little, 
that's out of the question. But we are not as to be, and I think this goes back to like, what does it say about me if I'm not present 24 seven? And that is some existential work. That is going to be some, some personal work that you do to figure out what does it say about me? What do I think it says about me if I'm not present all the time? Does that mean I'm not good enough? Does that mean that, you know, I'm not the mom that my mom was or whatever that I'm just now giving some examples, but we have to understand what is that underlying thought and belief that we have about a woman or a mother that cannot be present 24 seven. Is that realistic? Because it's not about changing our behavior, but part of it is about changing our expectation. The other thing is if we find that we are just not present enough, like, okay, there are things that are falling through the cracks and I'm not necessarily doing the job that I know I should be doing, maybe safety or whatever, whatever it is for you. That's when we need to figure out like, how do I rally the troops? What kind of supports do I need so I can be more present? Am I getting adequate breaks from my home? And I don't mean breaks to go work because that's not the break. I mean, to feed the soul. Like what, how much time am I getting in my day or in my week or my month for me? Is it adequate? Is it like a break I would get at work where I can truly be carefree for 30 minutes to an hour? So it's really about, is my, are my expectations in line with reality and how much support do I have? Because it looks like, and it feels like I might need some more. And I have done a lot of reading about the working mom I mean, I know both sides do this to themselves, but the working mom feeling like because she works, Mm -hmm. then when she's with her kids, she's got to be 100% on. She's got to show them she loves them just as much as any other mom. She's got to be, you know, so we get as women, we get into this pressure cooker system of like, we always have to be fully on for them. Um, And I tell Abby, I'm like, I think my secret sauce is I'm just not as hard on myself and like my expectations aren't as high. I lean into like these little boys, if they're playing together and independently, that is awesome. Like that is something that they need to acquire the skill to do too. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dr. Reem, thank you so much for being on our podcast. You are so brilliant and I thank have you. learned so much from this conversation and I know it's going to get into the world and help a lot of moms. Um, we have, we'll probably have so many follow-up questions coming in for you. So hopefully this won't be a one-time stop. Um, mm-hmm. but I wanted to have you tell our listeners more about where they can find you and the opportunities that you have available. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was a, such a, I feel like such a easy conversation to have. Um, you can find me well, like you as noted earlier, I'm psyched mommy on Instagram and actually on every social media platform. So that's P S yeah, that is P S right. P S Y C H E D M O M M Y. I always like, I literally have to stop myself. And my website is also psychedmommy.com. I have a digital course called keeping mommy in mind that focuses all on mom's mental health. And it comes with a digital workbook and with tons of information about how to improve your mood and how to really talk to your partner. There's an entire module that focuses on that relationship. It's um, been really helpful and impactful for new parents. I love the feedback that I'm getting. Um, And I am also working on another resource. I'm currently in the infancy stages of creating a body image resource for uh, postpartum women, because what most people don't know is before I started 
into this field, I was actually working in eating disorder recovery. So, um, yeah, just a lot of cool things happening. I love this space and I love working with new parents and with mothers. So psyched mommy is me, or some people call me Asherina. Some call me mommy. (laughs) (laughs) What a powerful combination right there. Like what a necessary time to be really sinking into body image, especially when our bodies are changing, like constantly Mm -hmm. changing in the season. So thank you again so much, Dr. Reem. And this is going to be a gentle reminder right now to check in on your mama friends. And also check in on yourself. Like we heard today, many of us can look like we are fine, like we have it all together, but we're really needing support. And in a lot of ways, not just physical, but emotional and mental as well. And that simple phrase, you brought it up, I don't feel like myself. It's such Mm -hmm. a red flag. It's such an easy thing to say. And we can just breeze right past it. But it can easily be dismissed. Um, So reach out to a friend, maybe even with this podcast and some of the tips that were brought up today. So thank you again so much. Absolutely. Have a great one. Thank you.